Our text this morning is Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, What an illustration of God's free grace. That where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. For here, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Now think of it. The Son of God hanging on a cross between two vile and violent men and associated with them as one worthy of such a horrible and shameful death. Here the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 12 is literally fulfilled when it says of the Messiah that he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. No wonder the Jewish rulers are sneering at him. He saved others, he said. They said, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Luke tells us that the soldiers also came up and mocked him, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But what Luke doesn't tell us is that as Matthew and Mark report, the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left, also joined in the mocking. For they tell us that those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. What an awful picture of sin and depravity. For here are these men teetering on the very brink of hell. They're in excruciating pain and misery. And now they're about to end their miserable life by mocking the Son of God. It's hard to conceive of a more awful and desperate state of wretchedness than what we see with these two men in this horrible scene on the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. But then, By the grace of God, something happens to one of these criminals as he hangs upon his cross. Like a burning stick snatched from the fire, he is plucked from the very jaws of destruction. An amazing change takes place in him. And he's changed from being a hardened sinner to a broken-hearted penitent. One moment, he has no more hope of going to heaven than the devil himself. The next moment, he's assured of a place in paradise. And before the day is over, he will find himself there in that blessed abode with Jesus. What happened to this man? And what can account for this change in him? Well, for sure, 
He must have been impressed by Jesus as he saw him crucified. How meekly and with what dignity, strength, and absolute self-control Jesus submitted to his executioners without resisting, cursing, or even complaining. And most amazingly of all, by actually praying for his enemies, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Without doubt, this man had never heard or seen anything like this in all his life. But that alone does not and cannot account for the change in this man. For many others had seen and heard the very same things and had remained just as hardened. And they kept right on with their scoffing, as did the other criminal who was crucified with him. Nor can the change be due to any idea that he was somehow better than his fellow criminal. For in nature and character, they were the same. Both were evildoers. Both were vicious, self-serving, and vile. Possibly they had even worked together. And now they were caught and brought to justice together. And now both were on the verge of death. Both saw and heard the Lord Jesus Christ as he was crucified. And yet, at some point later, one is changed from a hardened sinner who had earlier scorned Jesus into one who now believes in him, loves him, and adores him as his king. Why? Because of the grace and mercy of God alone. Because of the Holy Spirit who revealed to this man the beauty and greatness of Christ enabling him to see in that despised and rejected man of sorrows, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that Jesus is, and to commit his life to him. Therefore, when the other criminal mocks Jesus and says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. He rebukes him. Don't you fear God, he says, since you are under the same sentence? With these words, he acknowledges that their punishment was right. He owned his sin and confessed it freely. And he witnesses to his fellow criminal and calls him to fear God. As if he's saying, look, we're about to appear before God and to face a judge infinitely more terrible than the one who sentenced us to be crucified. Don't you fear God? We are punished justly, he says, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And then, looking at Jesus, he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. Think of the courage of this man to say that. 
He dares to say in the face of all these enemies of Jesus who stood there mocking and slandering him that Jesus is innocent. And so he condemns not only Pilate and imperial Rome, but the Jewish leaders and the whole of the Jewish nation for their unjust treatment of Jesus. The unrepentant outlaw has only one thing in mind. He wants to get out of his pain. If you're the Christ, get me off this cross. But the penitent criminal wants to get out of his sin. He's in the same pain, of course. But he realizes there's something more important and valuable. And that's his eternal soul. The other criminal thinks of Jesus only as a magician. You say you're the Christ. Well then, save yourself and us. Do a trick and get us out of here. But the repentant criminal doesn't look at Jesus as a magician to grant our wishes. But he looks at Jesus as the king so he defends Jesus' royal honor and rebukes his fellow criminal, saying, in effect, how dare you speak to Jesus that way? Speaking of this repentant criminal, John Calvin says, I doubt that since the creation of the world, there ever was a more remarkable and striking example of faith. That his eyes could see in death, life. In ruin, majesty. In defeat, victory. In shocking and worse than revolting abasement, the kingdom of God. You must put yourself in the position of this criminal to appreciate the faith that he expressed. For what was he looking at when he looked at Jesus? He's looking at one who for all the world is in the same predicament as he and who was demonstrating no ability to get himself out of it. His enemies seem to have defeated him. His friends and closest associates have all but for one, John, forsaken him. And public opinion is unanimously against him. He sees the sign on Jesus' cross, which read, This is the King of the Jews. But below that sign, he sees Jesus with a crown of thorns pressed into his brow, nails driven through his hands and feet, and naked and bleeding for all to see. Nobody 
is saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is before the three hours of inexplicable darkness. This is before the earthquake that opened up the graves of the saints. This is before the centurion's testimony of what he saw and who Jesus really is. Yet that criminal looks at this one, the object of laughing and scorn, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly, this is one of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible. A faith resting on nothing that is seen, but what is unseen. And in fact, contrary to everything that at that moment could be seen. Except for that sign above Jesus' head that said, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. John tells us that the Jewish leaders wanted to change it, wanted to change to read, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused to alter it. The repentant man believed what that written notice said. His faith took hold of that written word of God, for such it was. And God's grace and power opened the eyes of his understanding to see that it was the truth. Here at the very site of the crucifixion, God raises up for Jesus a man who would believe in him and perceive his kingdom with greater accuracy than any of his disciples had in their three and a half years with him. This man looks to the crucified Savior, and he says, You are the king of the Jews. I know you are. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Yes, not if it should be that you come into your kingdom. But notice his words, when you come into your kingdom. What joy this must have given our Savior. Who as Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, he will see the result of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. Here was the first fruit of Jesus' suffering for the sin of the world, for those he came to save. And undoubtedly, it filled Jesus with a holy joy. This man probably didn't know much theology, but his short prayer, as someone has said, his short statement to Jesus contains a very large creed. For here he confesses that the soul does not die with the body, but that there's a world beyond in which judgment takes place. 
that Jesus is the king of that realm and that Jesus had authority to bestow its life to those who were truly sorry for their sins and who trust in him. And so this condemned criminal entrusts his entire soul and eternity upon this crucified, mocked, and rejected king. When he says, Jesus, remember me, does he mean your death shall not fail? Your kingdom will come? That to you belongs the world and you will reign from sea to sea over all? Does he mean grant that I, your servant, may have a place in your kingdom when you come into your glory? Yes. He meant every bit of that. Remember me, he says. Me. Meaning one whom no one would ever want to remember. Not his family. Not his friends whom he has so disgraced. Nor anyone else. As one whom almost all his society were only too happy to be rid of, he would die. As one guilty of sedition, his body would either be soon taken off the cross and burned with lime, or left on the cross as a fuller humiliation to rot and to be eaten by the birds and other prey. And his name would perish and to be remembered no more. To be remembered by no one. But there is one person to whom he ventures to make this request. Jesus, remember me. And it was not in vain. For Jesus hears him and answers him. And the response of our Savior and King could not have been more wonderful, both to his ears and to ours. For Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you today, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Understand how amazing this answer of Jesus is. To all the insults hurled at him, Jesus gave no answer. To the jeering of the Jewish rulers, the soldiers, and all those around him, Jesus made no response. But the request of this unbelieving criminal, of this believing criminal, immediately arrest Jesus' attention. At a time when Jesus' suffering and pain was beyond comparison to anything we can imagine, when he's grappling with the powers of darkness and bearing the awful, unspeakable load of his people's guilt, we might think that he would be too preoccupied to respond to anyone's request. And most amazing is not just that he does answer this man. 
but what and how he answers this man. For Jesus is so attentive to this man's request and to his every word that he answers him word for word and phrase for phrase. In all sincerity and truth, this man cries out to him. And he says, Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, I. That is, I whose name means salvation. Truly, I say to you. This man says, remember me. And as Jesus indicates, I shall do more than remember you. You will be with me. This man says, remember me when you come. And Jesus says, in effect, not when I come, no, but today. This man says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, in effect, you will indeed be in my kingdom. And not only in my kingdom, but in the paradise of heaven itself. What grace, what proof of Jesus' promise that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And if that was true of our Lord Jesus on that good Friday, how much more so today. For if Jesus can give such attention to this dying criminal while he himself was dying, how much more so when we turn to him in our need now that he is seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, remember me. The believing criminal says. But why would Jesus remember him if Jesus was anything less than what scripture says he is? Our compassionate savior. That criminal might have expected Jesus to say, remember you? Why should I remember you? What have you done for me? In fact, just a little while ago, you added your voice to the others in mocking me. Remember you? What have you ever done for God? You've been a thief and a thug and a self-serving sinner all your life. Why should I remember you? You have no share in what I'm accomplishing on this cross. Remember you? What have you done for anyone? Jesus could have said that. But this criminal didn't plead on the basis of what he had done. But on the basis of his need. And Jesus, who alone could answer to his need. And so it is with us, for all of our works, in and of themselves, are as filthy 
rags, says Isaiah, preventing any and all of us from ever entering paradise on the basis of our own merit. Like this man, we must say, remember me, not because of what I've done or can yet do, but because I need you. And Jesus says today, you will be with me. Here now, yes, and forever in paradise. For I came to save such as you. Brothers and sisters, like these two criminals, we too have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we must see that our situation in and of ourselves is just as desperate. And we must see that like these two men, crucified on Jesus' right and on his left, no one can remain neutral towards Jesus. For either you see yourself as a needy sinner and Jesus as the only Savior upon whom you entrust your entire life and eternity, or you don't. For one, the message of Christ's cross is an offense and foolishness. Very least, something I care little about. While for the other, it is the power of God for salvation. And it's that cross that divides the entire human race, just as it divided those two criminals. So it divides those who see their need and trust themselves to Jesus and will know everlasting blessedness from those who will know everlasting despair. The division of the cross is that radical and that real. But the good news is this. No matter what your crimes have been, you cannot be too bad to be saved. For as Jesus says, in keeping with the very theme of Luke's gospel, written out for us in chapter 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And none can sink lower than that. Nor is it ever too late to be saved for those who will own their need. No, as we see with the believing criminal, it is never too late to repent. But neither is it ever too soon. Oh, how foolish to wait. For like the unbelieving criminal, sin only hardens us against the Lord and his salvation. It doesn't make it easier to repent later, but harder. Making any last gasp opportunity that you may think you have to turn and be saved, nothing more than a deceptive ploy 
that ensures a person's place in hell. Ensuring that we, like that lost criminal, will die just as we lived. For it's only God the Father who, as Jesus says, can draw anyone to himself. As J.C. Ryle has said regarding the deathbed conversion of the repentant thief. We have this one example in scripture that none might despair, but only one that none might presume. To all who believe and own him as their savior, as their Lord, as king of their lives, Jesus promises the glory of his kingdom now and forever. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen.